Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. Nathan, where are you at today? I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, the heat wave finally broke, so I actually had to wear a long sleeve shirt this morning when I walked out to go get my coffee. Um, I think it's about 64 degrees, which is like as cold as it's ever going to get here in Los Angeles. So okay. winter yeah. is upon us. I got out my flannel shirt. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Uh, no, it's been a lot colder here, um, which is nice. I actually like cold weather. And, you know, we had this, uh, we had, cl- last time we talked, it was uh, it was Wednesday, so it was the day after the election, right, I think? Yes, it was. And so I had class on Tuesday night, and then I also had class on Wednesday night, and it was it was almost a ghost town. I mean, there was just such a fallout, I think partly because we're in D.C., uh, so many people just <laughs> just couldn't get themselves to come to class. They were up late the night before. They were shocked by the election results. And this week, uh, people are recovering. They're coming back <laughs> to class, <laughs> kind of wondering, like, oh, what homework did I miss? Uh, can I start rebuilding my life? I think that's the general sense I get. Uh, did you have any... Um, fallout from the election or is it everyone in california just thinking well we're gonna separate from the union anyway so none of this matters <laughs> yeah right um fallout no not really i had a few people you know i announced that discount for my online class um last time <laughs> had a few people sign up for the trumpocalypse discount and uh, cool. mm-hmm. that was cool so they're you know cranking away now in my online class I haven't seen my live class yet since the election because I've do I do a weekend schedule uh, in San Francisco and I don't actually have a Los Angeles class running right now. Los Angeles classes will start again in January, so I see my San Francisco kids this weekend, and yeah, hopefully they're you know over it uh, slash doing something about it. And by doing something about it, I don't mean ridiculous fantasies about california seceding from the union um that's just so absurd i mean i'm like i'm borderline in fact no i'm not borderline i am actively uh unfollowing people on twitter and stuff when when it's like people popping off about this petition to to secede from the union it's like okay listen people had these other these stupid ideas in 2002 when george w bush got elected and it was stupid then and it's stupid now it's never going to happen stop wasting my time and so then people get muted on Twitter and I don't have to hear from them anymore. Yeah. Sorry to be harsh about it, but it's like, maybe I'm getting old. Uh, you know, quit whining, do something constructive. Let's get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Life has a 100% mortality rate. You know, we're all every day getting one day closer to death. And I don't want to spend it just hearing people ineffectually whining and complaining you know if you want to study for the lsat go to law school and actually do something great if you want to just watch your favorite tv show on netflix and forget about the whole thing that's fine too but uh yeah the it's the time for whining is just it's it's over it it happened you could learn from it you could move on but the whining i don't it's not doing anything is that how you feel about it yeah, well, um, my my wife uh, voted for uh, Clinton, and uh, but one thing she keeps saying is like, 
all these people are complaining, but what about all the Democrats that didn't vote and get out to vote? Like that's the lesson, right? Like <laughs> there is so there was so much apathy for the election process and now it's kind of hard to be like complaining about it you need to fire people up and get them to take action if they want to see results i mean i'm sure it's more complicated than that but i have to kind of sympathize with that view yeah the system's broken it's been broken for a long time this is not news i don't really know many people who were legitimately fired up about electing hillary clinton president of the united states you know mm -hmm. it was sort of like it's it's been lesser of two evils with the exception of Obama, we've had lesser of two evils for a long time. And mm -hmm. so, you know, you put up a nominee like that, then nobody gets excited. Then some crazy person comes and wins. And who knows? We got, you know, <laughs> I say we like I'm a Democrat. I'm definitely not a Democrat. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a, these people are all idiots. You know, <laughs> let's get down to business. <laughs> but, um, the <clears throat> Democrats were, I would identify much more as a liberal than I would as a Democrat, but mm. the liberals have, uh, you know, now is the time to get cracking on 2018 and 2020 and uh, see if we can uh, put up somebody who we will actually get excited about. Yeah. Yeah. So today we have a lot of good... A couple good emails, and then uh, I think we'll jump into some questions from the June 2007 LSAT. Also wanted to give a big thanks to Rob from Massachusetts, who donated a whopping $50 to the show. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. I'm assuming you're from Massachusetts. I actually have no idea, but that's your area code. So anyways... Just so everybody knows, that money goes directly to Ben, and then he, it's in his discretion to whether he, he even doles out any of it to me as an allowance. Yeah. So, yeah. so please, <laughs> please don't um, tell Nathan that actually the donations have been pouring in. Uh, <laughs> And then this has been funding my my new lifestyle. But uh, yeah, no, I think that, <laughs> that is our our third donation ever. So thank you. It will it will slowly be doled out to Nathan once he can show me exactly how he wants to use it. You know, of course. <laughs> uh, totally joking. So, uh, anyways, we have um, this first email from. Can we say the name here, or should we not? I say say it. If they you. Listen, writer, listeners, writers into the show. If you don't want us to use your name, it's on you to put. Don't use your. Don't use my name. Yeah, yeah. And first names are pretty. Uh, you know, not yeah, scripted. Come on. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, who is this from? I don't see the name now. Oh, whoops. Um. Oh yeah. So this was actually posted to the website. Oh okay. Yep. And name. Oh, it says he who must not be named. That is the name. That is the okay. author. He who must not be named. Yeah. <laughs> well, that lets us know that uh, we will not use the name. So, um, Philippe, sound good? Sure. Philippe uh, ha has been listening to the podcast and is working and wants us to discuss further, quote, the topic of studying and working full time. Question number one. Does it ever make sense to quit your full-time job to study for the LSAT? Um, you want me to handle that? Sure. What do you think? Probably not. 
Yeah. I, don't, I don't like it when I hear that. I don't like it. Why does it have to be all or nothing? Uh, you know, it can't you either work full time and carve out an hour or two a day of study time or, you know, tell your job that you're going to quit if they don't accommodate you to do, to, you know, to find some study time. Mm hmm. But full-time jobs are good. They pay you money and you're going to need it <laughs> if you're going to law school. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I give almost a hard no on that one. Yeah. Here's, here's my experience with working with people who have quit their full-time jobs. Um, I think that obviously they do have more flexibility in their schedule now that they're not obligated to go somewhere for nine hours a day or more. And so they do end up putting in more LSAT time. But one thing you have to realize is that studying for the LSAT is like exercising. You can't go to the gym for six hours a day. You can go two hours, maybe three, and try to sh do a variety of different workouts. But at some point, your body is just going to fail. And the same thing happens with your mind. You can't study the things on the LSAT that are giving you the most trouble, which is what you should be studying and um, making progress on those things for six hours a day. So I think a lot of people think that, oh, I'm going to quit. I'm going to then have a full work day to do the LSAT. And the reality is that they cannot work that full day. So the, the loss of the job uh, ends up not giving you as much time as you think it will, at least for the LSAT. Now, you definitely have more time. You're also not as stressed. But Another weird thing that happens is that I will be working with people, and this is not true for everyone, of course, but a lot of people who are not working, maybe they're living with their parents or have saved up money or something like that, they come, we, we go over stuff together, I give them uh, homework assignments just like I would with anyone else, and most people I work with are working, and they come back the week later or whenever and they haven't done that much more than everyone else. And yeah. in fact, sometimes they're like, oh, well, my brother came to town and I had to go hang out with him for two days and then my mom needed some help with moving, so I went back home and helped with that. Yeah. It's like everybody knows that you're not working now, and so they impose on your time, and unfortunately you're letting them. That's a big mistake. But it's sort of like, okay, I think the sense that you have all the time in the world actually – does more harm than if you realize when I get home at night, I only have an hour, so don't mess with that hour. I'm going to jump right into studying, and you actually get things done. Yeah, uh, work expands to fill available time, right? So yep. I've had, you know, some of the least busy people in the world are the least effective, and some of the busiest people in the world are the most effective. Um, I interviewed my friend Nikki Black, uh, the immigration attorney, on a previous episode, and she, you know, <laughs> she gets more done in a day than any other human being. And she has a she has a gigantic job that fills up all her time. Yeah. And still, if you know, if you need um, a an internet cable run in your apartment, like hardwire uh, Ethernet cable to uh, one of the bedrooms or something. <laughs> Nikki's the one who will do it. 
It, yeah. Even though she's working 90 hours a week or whatever it is, you know, it's like mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. the one who just get, oh, wait, we need to schedule uh, something or other. Like we need to get this this done and check this box off and check that box off. I mean, she's just got a list and she's just hammering down that list and getting everything done. Yeah. So, yeah, I I would I would be worried about quitting the job and then just kind of burning up all of that extra time you're gonna have too much time on your hands i feel like yeah and one thing i think that you said um trying to like carve out time from your job to allow you to study so many people i feel like think that that's not possible that leaving work a little bit earlier than you usually were leave or you know heading out during lunchtime and doing a 35 minute section or something is just not possible because they're just so busy at work. But the thing is, if you're at a really busy job, the amount of work is never going to go away, right? Like, it's not like if you do more one day, they're like, oh, okay, well, see you later. In most cases, they're just like, okay, well, here's here's the next stuff. Keep going. You know, let's see how much we can get done in a day. And so you're kind of setting an arbitrary standard to be like, well, I have to do all this and I have to work this many hours. You have to end at some point and you might as well just end a little bit earlier so you can have more time in your life for the LSAT. And you're leaving. You're leaving them eventually, right? So, (laughs) Well, yeah, that's the thing is like, oh, well, if you're going to quit entirely, why can't you just work 90% as much and, you know, keep help, keep people are like, well, I don't want to put them in that position. So I'm going to just quit? Wait, what? I don't get it. (laughs) Why don't you just work 90% as much? This might mm-hmm. also be a good time to, you know, practice with drawing boundaries around your work life. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to need to know how to do that. In law school, you're going to need to know how to put boundaries around it. And mm-hmm. in when you're studying for the bar and then in legal practice as well, you're always going to have to be able to say no. So yeah. why not just carve out the time? I mean, I think another thing is it's a classic procrastination technique. I, I can I can be a bit of a procrastinator from time to time. And one of the things that I will find is that I overestimate how long a task is going to take. Mm-hmm. And because I overestimate it, then I dread it. Then I just don't do it at all. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of times people are like, well, I can't, you know, I, oh, I, I, I don't have the proper amount because they think they need four hours a day. And they're like, well, there's mm-hmm. no way I can do four hours a day. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't need to do four hours a day. You need to do an hour or two a day. Yeah. This schedule down here is interesting. Should we go through a little bit of the, these details? This is a... Sure. Because it says a typical work day, including transit for Philippe, is 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., 12 hours. That's a typical work day, including transit. And that's probably pretty common. Mm-hmm. That hurts. That hurts me to look at, but that is probably pretty common. Yeah. Breakfast, dinner, self-maintenance equals two hours. Uh, okay. Sleep equals seven to seven and a half hours. Study equals two and a half to three hours. So then Monday through Friday, that adds up to 12 and a half to 15 hours. Hmm. Then it says procrastination, et cetera. There's some time loss. And so realistically, Philippe is spending six to eight and a half hours per week, Monday through Friday. Mm. On the weekends, I usually spend two to three hours a day if I'm studying theory, which I don't 
know why you would be studying theory ever. And then three to six hours a day if I take a prep test and review. Hmm. So, I mean, if you add all this up, it, it actually looks like Philippe is probably doing plenty of studying right now. Yeah, I would say this is great. If you can do uh, six to eight and a half hours during the week and then another, I mean, three to six on the weekend, that's a lot of LSAT studying. Yeah, 10 10 hours a week is enough to make progress, right? I mean, I can't can't tell you how quickly you're going to get to whatever your goal is and Philippe wisely says i don't really have a target score as i feel that it only serves as a distraction which i i agree with pretty much but if if philippe keeps going at this pace you know or even a little bit less than this pace do do seven to ten hours a week do at least an hour every day sometimes a little bit more and you'll definitely make progress so yeah i don't philippe says Shout out to the people working full time. It's not easy. It makes my college lifestyle seem cute in comparison. I can't imagine doing this and having the additional burden of maintaining a family. Nuts. Yeah, I mean, totally agree with that, right? Yeah. I mean, this whole story, the whole question makes me remember my 1L experience and seeing, you know, two thirds of the class was like right out of undergrad and one third of the class had it was, you know, older and had jobs and families and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was hilarious the how much the college kids complained about law school. You know, they just like thought it was so dramatic and so hard and just so time consuming and taxing and stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I was all, I always thought it was funny because it's like, <laughs> wait till you get, <laughs> wait till you have a job and, and then wait till you have a job and potentially some of these people have kids and stuff like really, yeah. you think this is tough? Wow. You know, the other thing I was thinking about here when he's talking about the time, you have, uh, let's, you know, I think it's still, he definitely has about 10 hours a week. How you use that time is also really important, right? Yeah. I, I think that um, Angela Duckworth's book, uh, which was Grit, um, talked a lot about how people can do a lot of different things when they're preparing for, she was talking about spelling bees in particular, but whatever it is that you're pursuing. And if you spend your time doing things that are easy, that are not what you should be working on, right? Like sometimes I'll tell people, hey, go work on these games. Oh, and here's when you, after you do a couple games, here's some LR questions, do these and kind of go back and forth so that you're not just doing games all week. You're doing some games, you're doing some LR, you're doing some reading comp, you're going through them. And then they come back and they're like, well... Uh, the LR is easier for me. It makes more sense. It kind of comes in net intuitively to me. So I did all the LR challenges you gave me, and I've done. Uh, looks like I started this first game and maybe done half of the second. Mm, yeah. And, and you're like, um, okay, well, you're you're not going to make any progress in games, and pro- if that's <laughs> if the LR is coming naturally to you, then you're not really changing your score there that much. Maybe you are. Uh, I'm not saying that 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 effort wasn't useful, but if you suck at games, go do games. And 
I think really all three sections, you should be rotating through them. Maybe you spend more time on games if that's what you're bad at than the other sections. But um, you should be taking that one and a half to two hours a day that you do have and really trying to make headway with things that mess you up. And that comes back to doing 35-minute sections because they'll tell you what you suck at and what you then need to turn around and focus on. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's amazing that people don't like to work on their weakest section, but that's obviously the section where you have the biggest opportunity to improve. Most people can improve most quickly at their worst section, not their best. Mm -hmm. Your best section, you're already good at it. It's hard to get. (laughs) You're already getting 22 correct on logical reasoning. It's hard to get those last three. Yeah. But when you're getting 12 on the games, it's actually easy to go from 12 to 18 on the games mm-hmm. if you just practice it, if you just work on it. Yeah. People like to, I guess, bury their head in the sand and, you know, just kind of they're in denial about the whole thing. But you, sorry, guys, you really need to conquer these logic games and they're not that hard. I mean... Also, boy, if you don't have the fortitude to just do the practice and figure out the logic games, mm-hmm. oh, man, have fun in civil procedure yeah, and <laughs> <laughs> business associations and all of these other classes that you're going to, you know, you're going to think you suck at those too, right? Business, yeah. man, like, like corporations or business associations or whatever. And people are just going to be like, well, I don't know anything about about finance and business economics stuff i'm just gonna nah i'll just spend time over here instead on the stuff i i understand more yeah (laughs) whoops well that's not that's not what you need to do you gotta work on your soft spots yeah so he says what are some what are some strategies for managing work stress and fatigue meditating has been mentioned but any others Um, yeah, obviously sleep, exercise, mindfulness stuff is really good. I can give a, I can give a tip to, uh, I just discovered this thing on Twitter that I think is really cool. It's called, uh, tiny care bot. It's at tiny care bot. And it's just a a little robot that a little bot that somebody programmed that just puts little self-care reminders into your Twitter feed. Mm. So as I'm looking at, um, you know, Trump's crazy tweets and stuff, he's comedy on Twitter, by the way. He's the he's the funniest, I think, the funniest person on Twitter has to be Donald Trump. He's it's, <laughs> Every time I laugh, it's hilarious. Um, but, the, you know, in the midst of that and other people that I follow, um, I get these little reminders, like, you know, please take some time to send some messages to your friends or please take some time to stretch. And it's just like a little, you know, like, Hey, drink some water. That That's like one of the things. And it's yeah. like, it's just kind of cool. So anyways, that's at tiny care bot. Follow that on Twitter and you'll maybe start living. You get like those little nudges to live a little healthier. Yeah. What else? What do you recommend, Ben? Well, I was thinking about myself when I get uh, stressed, it's usually because I've uh, procrastinated things that need to get done and instead done little things that Absolutely. don't really need to get done, right? Yep. And so to get myself to do that stuff that I hate doing, I and I, this is what you mentioned earlier, is I break it up. I mean, I will break it down to the smallest thing ever. Sometimes it's like, I mean, it's so stupid, but 
I I might have just a whole ton of email or something, which we've talked about a lot, but I'll just use that as an example. And I'll say, okay, I really don't want to get to this. So instead I do something else that maybe needs to get done. But to, to get myself to do that, I'll just say all I have to do right now is one email. That's it. I just have to respond to one. And then I, I'm free to like walk away, do something else, go get a snack. And just doing that first one actually ends up leading to a lot more. But if it is still painful, I just say I do one and then I leave. So if you're having trouble getting like work under control, you're probably putting to the end of the day things that you really should be doing at the beginning. Just think about whatever you don't want to do the most and then chop that up into like the smallest piece it could possibly be and do that. That's all you have to do. And then do that again and again and again. And pretty soon the the these high priority items that really need to get done, even if you don't want to do them, will start getting off your plate. And then you might have a whole bunch of other things, but because they're not that important, it doesn't stress you out. It's the things that stress you out are the things that are looming over your head that you know you need to take care of. And that would include, you know, LSAT stuff as well. Sometimes it's just like, hey, I don't want to do this right now, but all you have to do is one LR question. Just go do it. Yeah. Try to figure it out. Try to understand it. What did you learn from it? And then maybe go do something else. But yeah. the reality is once you start, you're almost certainly going to do a few more. Yeah. Do this logic game. Oh, that's too much for you? Okay. Just do the list question. Just do the first question. Process mm-hmm. of elimination. Understand the rules. Knock out all the wrong answer choices. You're going to be left with one answer choice. Can you do that? Did you do that? Did you get it correct? Did you did you answer it correctly? Did you feel good about yeah. it? Yeah, good. Okay, great. Well, if you can do that, then you can also figure out the other ones too. Mm-hmm. So baby steps, I guess we're t- we're saying. Yeah, I mean, I use it all the time to get myself to like keep keep going. And then once that stuff is off your plate, like you may have a ton of other stuff, but it just doesn't bother you. You can like say, "Well, I'll do that tomorrow." Yeah. Oh, can I give one more one more just like a stress tip? Yeah, of course. I love to take long walks. Okay. I, I think, yeah. I think, I mean, it, there is something just meditative about it. I usually will listen to podcasts or music or something while I do it, uh, which, you know, can be less or more relaxing depending on what you're listening to. Yeah. Um, but also you could just, you know, leave the phone at home if you wanted and just not listen to anything, but go for a long, it's hard to be stressed out when you go for a long walk, you know, your body moves, you get out in the world a little bit. It's just kind of easy to get some instant calm and perspective from a walk. So maybe give that a shot. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that because, um, I just got this Fitbit and it tells me to get up and walk (laughs) every now and then it's like, Hey, stop sitting. You're killing yourself. And I get up and my reaction, at least when I first got it was like, Oh man, like you're interrupting me. Who cares about this? I got to keep working on what I'm working on. But what I found is that when I get up and walk, even we're just talking like, I just walk outside, then come back in or something like that. While I'm gone, I'm thinking to myself, Okay, I'm trying to finish up this stuff right now, but that's actually not really that important. I should probably be working on this other thing. And so every time I take a like get interrupted so to speak and go just like walk as opposed to a traditional interruption where someone is trying to talk to you or call you, which is I think a negative form of interruption, but uh where I'm getting up and I'm leaving and I'm coming back to the situation, I'm realizing, wait a sec, I probably actually should be using my time differently and that 
is way more effective than the you know the slight time loss that I had from getting up and walking. I think there's something like you're saying about just walking around, not having anything to do that like frees your mind and lets you like. You come back and reprioritize and take care of the thing that actually needs to be taken care of. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, thank you, Philippe. Did you have anything else for him? No, I think that's great. Thanks for thanks for writing. Good luck. Cool. Don't quit your job. <laughs> so the next one is from Brett. What does Brett have to say? Brett says, thank you for doing the podcast. It gets me pumped to start studying the LSAT again when I am feeling burned out. Background. 3.65 undergraduate. Uh, that's a bachelor's in science. 164 full-length timed practice test, 30 years old, current work, Department of Social Services investigator. Here's my dilemma. I was scheduled to take the September LSAT so that I could apply early in the admission cycle. However, I was diagnosed with kidney cancer at the end of August and had to have a major surgery, making the September LSAT impossible. Wow. The time in recovery was spent studying, and I have seen a significant increase in my scores. I am scheduled to take the December LSAT and will send my applications in as soon as I get my score back. I have a number of concerns. In order for me to go to law school, I must receive a significant scholarship. That's uh, very wise of you. I wish more people felt that way. The cancer is now apparently all gone and my prognosis is good, but the idea of crippling my wife with a ton of debt if it comes back is unacceptable. How much will applying late in the cycle affect my chance, uh, chances of a scholarship? Should I write an addendum for why I am applying late? Some people have told me that I should write a part of my personal statement on what it's like to study for the LSAT, have cancer, and work a stressful job all at once. My concern with this is twofold. Will a school consider it an unnecessary risk to take someone who has had an illness like cancer? Will an admissions counselor consider such a personal statement as a cheap ploy to get into law school? Will it make me come across as a crybaby who isn't tough enough for law school because I know full well that there are people far worse off than I am and just how fortunate I am? Thank you for your time. Uh, and that is Brett. I don't think that the law schools will look at this negatively. It really depends on how you write it, right? If you, if you write a letter in which you're trying to blame everything on your cancer and how hard it was, it's going to come across in the way that he's saying as a crybaby. But I don't think there's anything wrong with pointing out that, Hey, things were tough. Like, this is what I went through. This is what I learned from it. And, um, so I think it all depends on how he frames his story. And I don't think they'd be really concerned about the risk. I don't, I don't think they're thinking too, too much along the lines of like, oh, we might not want to invest in someone who might get cancer again. I think they're just going to say, oh, it's all gone. Prognosis is good. We're not doctors. That's not our thing. Well, I mean, to be really, really cynical, they're going to get the tuition money no matter what. And if he drops dead in this 3L year, it's not like they have to pay the money back. Yeah, you know, that's what they're actually concerned about. I mean, to be even more cynical than that, if he drops dead, then he's not going to hurt their employment numbers if he doesn't get a job. Mm. So, <laughs> which, like, <laughs> I mean, 
<laughs> I think he's going to. Pro- it looks like with his scores and stuff, he's going to go to a better law school than that. So you know, he's he's probably going to end up with a great job um, with with these kinds of numbers. But um, at many law schools, when they've got you know these abysmal employment rates, they'd probably be happy if you were going to just pay them the tuition and then drop dead. Um, sorry, that's very morbid. Joke. No, it's. Uh, I think that's what he's trying to get at here, or at least if he gets, he may, he may, he maybe he doesn't drop dead, but gets sick enough that he has to drop out or something. But they still got your money for the first two semesters, and that is quite frankly what they care about. I mean, they, they yes, they want the best applicants they can get, but they they also you know they they want your money. Can we go back to this? I, I want to take these kind of maybe piece by piece. How much will applying late in the cycle affect my chances of a scholarship? He's applying with a December LSAT score. What What do you think is does Does this totally crush his chances of getting a scholarship? Well, I think one thing to keep in mind is that most people are applying in mid January. So if he has uh, all his stuff together and he applies in early January, as soon as the score comes out, he'll actually be ahead of most applicants. So I wouldn't necessarily consider it late. It's later than it's ideal. So It's later than perfect, but it's not by any stretch late, right? I mean, yeah. we, late would be after the February LSAT. Yes. Or, or, or right around the February LSAT because you've taken too long to get your stuff together and everybody else got their applications in before you right in january yeah applying when the scores come out in january that's definitely not late that's the middle of the cycle and absolutely people get scholarship money by the way i i think in the past i have fallen into the trap of saying they all the scholarship money is gone Mm. that's such bullshit there's no such thing as all the scholarship money is gone these scholarships are just discounts they can always just <laughs> invent another scholarship. Mm-hmm. So, yes, they do give more generous offers early in the cycle, but I don't really think it's correct to to imagine that, oh, well, they've, they've given away the scholarship money for the year. It's more like they... They gave a lot of people discounts early, and now they're they're needing to fill up the class with people who are going to pay them. And because you're applying late, they know you're desperate, and so they just don't make as generous of offers. True, although I think there is some limit to the amount of money they can discount because each student has a certain cost, right? And so they're trying to figure out how much yeah. – how many- They've admitted who are paying below that cost, how many people are right. paying above that cost, and how much money do they have to sort of make up the difference. I guess I just don't want to go with this myth of like there's a a, a vault of money that you know they're going to be pouring money out of the coffers to give to no, you. No, no, that's true. Well, I, there is that, but there's also like you're saying this <laughs> phantom money of well now we're charging you less than you would have paid or what we have. defined as the cost of tuition but that cost is obviously a lot higher than the actual cost so even when you apply late if you're a really super competitive applicant they're going to find a scholarship for you mm -hmm. right i mean you could apply on the very last day and if you come in with crazy numbers like your 75th percentile lsat and 75th percentile gpa and -hmm. if you apply at the very end of the cycle and if you tell them listen, I'm not coming here unless you give me a scholarship. They can say no, but they also, I think, are very likely to come up with that money. 
I think that, uh, yeah, I agree. It's better to apply earlier. You give yourself much more time to negotiate, and the initial starting offers are a lot better when you apply earlier. Sure. But it's not like it can't happen late in the cycle if, you, if you're a tough negotiator. Yeah. I think in his case, where he's applying in early, ideally, uh, January uh, or mid-January, he might have given up some of the best offers because they were reserved they were reserved for early decision applicants who were asking for a scholarship however that worked out or whatever yeah so maybe he should apply see what he gets and then if it's not good enough for his uh, financial situation consider doing the process again but doing early decision for a school or something in the next cycle yeah, the ultimate baller move, the the best possible negotiation tactic, right, is to just be willing to walk away. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you do apply late or, you know, suboptimally, this is not late. This is in the middle of the cycle. It's fine. It's just not as good as if you would have applied early. But if you apply in the middle of the cycle and if you, the offers come in and you're not happy with them, you try to renegotiate and they say they can't help you and if you're just not willing to pay that amount of money for that school, then yeah, absolutely. Just say, okay, fine. I'll reapply at the beginning of next cycle. By the way, when you do that, when you actually withdraw your application, it's possible that they're going to go, Oh uh, yeah, actually uh, I went and talked to my manager and uh, yeah, we, we actually can give you, you know, this <laughs> other deal. Cause I've seen that happen before. I mean, that's that, that has literally happened before where mm-hmm. a student withdraws their application and then the dean calls them back 10 minutes later. Oh, yeah, we, we actually did. We found this other scholarship we can give you. And it's like, okay, so that's the game. And you have to be willing to walk off the car dealership lot. Mm-hmm. That's, how, that's how negotiation works, right? You have to just say, nope, that's beyond my breaking point. See you later. And then surprise, surprise, a lot of times those offers get better. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's super hard to do that, though. You know, it's so it, I, I've seen it a million times where people have applied and then the offers come in and they're not that great. But then they just decide, oh, well, I don't want to go through that whole thing again. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. oh, and my my mom's so excited that I'm starting law school and I don't want to disappoint her. It'd be hard to explain it to my friends and family why I'm not starting law school. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I've come this far. I might as well just throw away one hundred fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> Seriously. So, yeah, you know, just I would say, Brett, you have to know yourself. I mean, you're probably I'm imagining that Brett is very tough <laughs> if Brett made it through kidney cancer and is still worrying about not wanting to call himself a crybaby. This is like something that someone who's pretty has has some fortitude would say. Right. Mm-hmm. And if if you know yourself, Brett, and if you know that you have the fortitude to walk away, which you should, because you should be worried about the debt, um, whether it's going to be incurred by you or um, only your wife after you drop dead, um, you know, if you're tough enough to walk away, then yeah, you can go ahead and apply. But the other strategy would be just don't apply this cycle. Mm-hmm. If you're that worried about like if you if you think you might be susceptible to taking a subpar offer, then absolutely don't apply. You know, wait and make sure that you've got the best possible application at the very beginning of the admission cycle. Yeah. Law school will always be there. You know, life is short 
and law school will always be there. And if you need to take another year to get your ducks in a row and make sure that you don't have this crazy debt, why not? Yeah. Hey, Nathan, do you have rattlesnakes? Sorry about that. Yeah. Hey, apologize to the listeners. Um, there's some uh, unending construction going on, and there's a oh, jackhammer okay. outside. So it's quiet enough that it. I was like, "What the heck is that?" Obviously, it's not rattlesnakes, but kind of made me think of rattlesnakes. So no, it, it is. I did see a rattlesnake uh, just a couple weeks ago up on the mountain here, Griffith Park. Uh, wow. I was hiking, mm. and there was a rattlesnake slowly just kind of picking its way down this embankment. I was hoping somebody's little dropkick dog was going to run up and try to mess with it. But <laughs> alas. But so how did you know it was a rattlesnake? You just saw its rattle at the end or something? Like it, Yeah, that- yeah, rattlesnakes are pretty unmistakable. But yeah, no, it had the had the rattle I don't coming. Think I've just, I don't think I've ever seen one. It kind of reminds me of that rattlesnake question. I've lived in California my whole life or most of my life and I'm a golfer too, so you and you know hike and stuff. So like you see rattlesnake signs all the time and there's golf courses where it's like oh don't go up there because there's definitely rattlesnakes but hmm. i don't think i had ever seen one either in the wild griffith park uh, on the hiking trails have signs everywhere about the rattlesnakes and sure enough yeah there 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 he was just right up by the side of the trail hmm. well i'm glad you're alive and here to tell us about it they're like the least scary thing in the world i mean if you were right if you if you were hiking through some brush or something and you came up on it and stepped on you know came close to stepping on it then it would be scary as shit because it would you know rattle at you and like if, if that then that would be really scary but when you see them at any kind of a distance i mean i was 15 feet away from it and it was like it's not going to spring off of the hillside and bite my face you know that's just not what they do <laughs> they don't want to they don't want any part of you they're <laughs> trying to get away how, how deadly is their venom do you have to like get it fixed pretty quickly or do you just get sick? I don't know. I I've heard they can kill people, but I don't think it's like you It's like that. kids or something. Yeah. yeah. And, or if you don't get treated. I don't I don't think it would be. And, and anyway, they're they're really not looking to mess with you. <laughs> they're they are smaller than you. They're not trying to eat you. So they're they're basically trying to get away. Yeah. One of my favorite LR questions is that rattlesnake one. I think it deals with rattlesnakes. It deals with um, molting. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. That is a good one. Yeah. It's telling the age. That's a necessary assumption question. Uh, Yes. It's a necessary assumption question, but they put a very, very good sufficient assumption and answer in there that pretty much everyone picks. Huh. So it's a good question for illustrating the difference between the two. Cool. Hey, um, I, I still didn't even get to Brett. Uh, he had a couple I wanted to specifically address. Um, he's asking about writing an addendum for why he's applying late. Mm. Uh, that I don't think is appropriate at all here because it's not a late application. And also the schools don't care. They, they actually, it's not like they're going to say, oh, actually, we will make a more generous offer to you scholarship wise because you wrote this addendum about why you didn't apply at the beginning of the cycle. I don't, that's not how it works. They, they have a wide window for applications. They're happy to receive your application whenever you send it in. They will make more generous offers to the people who apply early because they're trying to scoop up the best candidates early in the cycle. 
But mm-hmm. I just don't imagine them reading this addendum and being like, oh, yeah, well, let's be generous to this guy because of the cancer. I don't or, you know, I, it's not like they're going to just pretend you applied two months earlier. They've already admitted a bunch of people. They've already made a bunch of scholarship offers. They they will or will not make you an offer based on the strength of your candidacy. I don't think this addendum here would be appropriate at all. That's my gut. Yeah, I think if you were applying in February or something like that and you wanted to not look bad for applying late, because Anne Levine has said that it kind of looks bad when you're applying at the very end. What it does is I I think it just looks like you're a sucker, basically. And why why did it take so long to get your stuff together? What why are you why are you coming and knocking on the door now? Yeah, right? I think they like, just they probably just think you're naive. You know, they think you you kind of half-assed it. You don't really know what you're doing <laughs> when you apply late. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but th- but this is not late. Anyway. No. So in this case, I agree, no addendum. But maybe if you're applying in February and you had some legitimate reason like this, you would want to say, would you would want to include an addendum, but you'd also really want to consider why are you applying then? Just go for the next cycle. Yeah, I would. That's that would be my my feeling. There would be just why are you applying so late in the cycle? It's only six more months, and you can apply at the very beginning of the next cycle. Mm-hmm. Are you trying to overpay for law school? I mean, is that your goal? <laughs> Oh, yeah. And then as far as whether or not to put this topic in his personal statement, I really don't tend to like personal statements that mention the LSAT. They know your score. Your score is what it is. I don't think I would be saying anything. Let your score speak for itself. You know, get the score that will speak for itself. And don't be justifying your subpar LSAT score. I don't think that's what he really meant here, but I see a lot of those personal statements. So I wouldn't do that. And then as far as whether he should write part of his personal statement on what it's like to study for the LSAT, have cancer, and work a stressful job all at once, maybe. I, I think I would de-emphasize the LSAT part of that. You know, on your personal statement, you need to put your best foot forward, right? Why you and why law school? And if your cancer story is going to paint you in the most positive light, which it very well could. You are a cancer survivor. That is unique. That is interesting. That is, you've been through some shit and that's valuable. And so if, if that is like, you know, if you're putting your, your best foot forward here by talking about the kidney cancer and how you made it through and worked the job and what it meant to you, you know, what you learned from it, um, then I can see that being a great personal statement. But he said here, you know, a part of his personal statement on what it's like to do these things. And that to me sounds a little like an addendum and it's just not, I don't know, what's the rest of your personal statement about and why don't you just write it about that instead? I wonder if there's some way for him to write a personal statement about something else. And maybe, maybe it is about the cancer, but if he has something else that... He also really wants to to share with them that uh, reveals something that's unique or not necessarily unique, but very positive about Brett that shows uh, some of his stronger characteristics. He writes that personal statement. Maybe it's about work. Maybe it's about school, whatever. And then maybe he can get an addendum in here. And <laughs> the the 
the purpose of the addendum is to maybe I know this is going to go against what you were just saying, but maybe explain why he's pl- applying later than what he was planning when he was planning to apply or something. And so it's ostensibly to explain that. But in the process of writing it, he can briefly just mention, oh, by the way, I got cancer in August and was treated for it and recovered. And so it's sort of like a a subtle way of telling the admissions officers about this hard thing that he's gone through. But it doesn't come across as like, oh, I'm now writing you about this solely and want to like really emphasize it. It's just something that they become aware of and thus feel more sympathetic towards his application because they're like, oh, wow, he – he went through this admission cycle and had these challenges and still ended up applying here and all this stuff. I don't like it when people use addendums as like a second opportunity for a personal statement. Well, I'm not saying he should say that much. I'm just saying like like even if you just take the just I, I just FYI I wanted to let you know that I was a planning planning to apply early decision or something but I actually ended up missing that deadline because I had cancer in August and was treated for that and now I'm applying now that's it it's like three sentences but it's sort of by the way he's not crying about it but just FYI I went through this and it's like oh I mean people if the more they know about you the more I think they can sort of sympathize with your situation and who you are as a person and instead of just looking at the application as okay here's another person applying in January right oh this is someone who actually wanted to apply early decision I don't even know if that's true it would depend on the school for for Brett but and they weren't able to because of this thing and now they know more about you and so you've actually achieved a uh, I think a more important goal by just helping them get see the context of your whole application and what what has actually been going on, um, which I think will get you some sy- sympathy and um, understanding, just on a personal level. Okay, yeah, potentially. I, I think I might prefer to just see the personal statement about being a cancer survivor because that you know that could be a very powerful personal statement. That could. And and if that is uh, powerful in its own right, then maybe that's what he should write about. But he may also have something else that he wants to say that may be more pertinent to why he's going to law school, how he actually is going to be a good student and stuff. You know, you you could be a cancer survivor and not necessarily cut it in law school. Yeah. Just make sure if you do if you do take the addendum approach, just make sure you're not wasting their time. Right. Like too, if it's too much, too flowery, goes on and on too long, that would be bad. So if it's two or three sentences, you know, just very businesslike, then I think that could be OK. But uh, yeah, I'd be worried about like an addendum that's like, well, I wanted to apply earlier, but this and that. I mean, I, I, I could I could see a certain type of admissions person just being like, who cares? This is not relevant. So what? Why are you wasting my time with this addendum? So in my mind, I would be if that's actually true or potentially true for some schools, I would want to say that to say, look, I really value your school. I wanted to apply early decision, but I missed that deadline because I was diagnosed with cancer in August. And 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 then I'm done. That's it. That's the that's the end of the personal statement. But it conveys two messages. One, you're really important to me. I did have everything in order. And by the way, I got cancer. And that's like, I mean, how can anyone argue with that? You know, you probably. Like, yeah. And then but I mean, I would probably if you do mention the cancer, you probably need to say something about how you had the surgery and you're now cancer free. Yes. So another sentence and, yeah. you know, just very short, but it, it kind of in a roundabout way, it kind of conveys some messages that I think are more important than 
the actual um, maybe well no those are the messages you I would want to convey if if it was really a school that he wanted to apply to early because it's so important to him. Anyways, uh, should we jump into the June 2007 uh, yeah. questions here? First, um, you know, thanks, Brett, for writing in um, cancer. Wow, that's uh, a bummer. Glad you're on the other side of it, we hope. You know, I'm hoping that other listeners can hear a story like that and maybe get a little bit of perspective on how tough their own life actually is. We hear a lot of people, you know, just kind of whining about the stress of the LSAT. <laughs> And uh, the stress of the LSAT is nothing compared to the stress of cancer. So, yeah, congratulations on making it through and uh, best of luck. Yeah, certainly. Cool. June 2007? Yep. So this is the June 2007 LSAT, which you can just Google and follow along with us. We are in section three uh, on question eight. And we've been doing all the questions actually from the previous uh uh, section logical reasoning so you can go back to past episodes and find those if you find this helpful let's jump into this one this one is advertisement i guess i'll just go ahead and read it and it says advertisement fabric soft leaves clothes soft and fluffy and its fresh scent is delight <laughs> oh <laughs> it is a delight oh, this is great I, I look forward to getting some fabric soft yeah we conducted a test using over 100 consumers to prove that FabricSoft is the best. Yeah, yeah. Can't wait. Yeah. Let's see what they have to say. This is very, I, you know, they're just setting it up as a very standard. Um, there's a million ways they can go from here. But the classic thing is we did a study and the study proves that FabricSoft is the best. And our job is to just you know, spot what was wrong with their study, basically, or yeah. why their study does not, in fact, prove that FabricSoft is the best. So let's let's hear. That it. is just such a high bar, right? They're yeah. proving it, and it's not only like better than something else or good; it's the best. It's the best one. So let's let's hear it. Now we're not going to argue with the fact that they did a test, right? We're going to accept mm -hmm. all of these premises so so far they've told us it was a hundred consumers mm -hmm. um, so that happened that's a real thing and we're going to accept that they did this test but we're not going to accept that it proves that fabric soft is the best by the way a lot of times when we see numbers like this like a hundred consumers i'll have students who are really curious whether that's a big problem or not would you consider a hundred consumers to be a problem absolutely not nope. not, not i mean not necessarily if it was, you know, if this actually was a, you don't have to, you're not supposed to be a statistician, by the way, on the mm -hmm. LSAT, but a mm -hmm. hundred consumers, if they were, you know, randomly selected and properly controlled for whatever different confounding variables might be at play, a hundred consumers doesn't, it's not automatically like, oh, that's too small of a sample. A lot of people yeah. will want to do, yeah, I think that's good that you point that out, Ben, because a lot of people will be like, oh, a small sample, but not necessarily. No. I, when it's a small sample, it's almost always just so glaringly obvious that it you you want to cry, right? right? It's like we asked four people. Um, you're like, four people? Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just pretty ridiculous. Right. So anyways, let's look at the evidence that they have to prove that this is the best. Yep. Uh, says each consumer was given one towel, washed with fabric soft, 
and one towel washed without it. What? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so they have a comparison, right? 99% of the consumers preferred the sa- fa- fabric soft towel. Okay, so Fabric Soft is the most effective fabric softener available. Mm. Wow, you should know the answer here. <laughs> if you're doing you, it right, you should just know the answer. What are you thinking? Well, what did they? It says the other towel was washed without Fabric Soft. Yeah. So what? No Fabric Softener at all. Yeah. <laughs> or with the competing Fabric Softeners. Yeah. They didn't say. They don't say. So how do we know then that FabricSoft is the most effective fabric softener available? I mean, that's the first question out of your mouth should be, did you test the other fabric softeners? Yeah. This this is so bad on so many levels. By saying that it's the most effective one, even if the other towel was washed with another fabric softener, what would be the problem? Well, they didn't test all the other fabric softeners. Yeah. You you would have to test all the other fabric softeners in order to prove that FabricSoft is the best. Yeah, in the world. Right. I mean, even if you tested it against 99 other fabric softeners, there could still be another one out there that was better. So that's seriously problematic. And the original claim was that they're proving it's the best, and all that they're saying right here is that it's the most effective but best seems like a stronger claim even than that. Yeah. I think the other thing is going to be the answer, right? The also that's pretty yeah. easy. So I, I think it's going to be like, hey, dude, did you test all the other fabric softeners? Yeah. Surprisingly, the, art, the advertisement's reasoning is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds that it fails to consider whether... And then we go into the answers. Whenever the question says most vulnerable to criticism you know that you're looking at a flaw question. And so if you haven't seen the flaw yet, you'd want to put on the brakes, stop, go back, look at the argument again, and figure out what's wrong with it. Uh, Just the general sense that, oh, the argument is bad, is not good enough. You want to have a specific reason why you hate it. In our case, we hate it because they never tested the other fabric softeners. And there also seems to be this leap between most effective and best, but like Nathan is saying, it's probably not that. So let's look at the answers. A, oh, it fails to consider whether any of the consumers tested are allergic to fabric softeners. Not what we predicted, and I'm not really sure how the allergic stuff would have, how that would cut either way. So it seems irrelevant, out. Yeah. B, fabric soft is more or less harmful to the environment than other fabric softeners. That's just not the flaw that exists in the argument. Yeah, this does not what well, we predicted, and so I would probably cross it out. I'd be surprised, yeah, if it turns out to be the answer. I mean, we'd have to eliminate all five answers and come back to it. Sure. C. Fabric soft is much cheaper or more expensive than other fabric softeners. Same thing with as B. Um, I think cost is definitely relevant to or mm-hmm. potentially relevant to whether a fabric softener is the best. Just testing the towels and saying, hey, do you like this one? It's like, well, you test a you know, uh, Rolls-Royce versus a Ford Focus, and it's like, oh, everybody likes the Rolls-Royce best. So price definitely could be a factor. Environment could be a factor. The, the fact that both of those answers are there, it kind of makes them both wrong because, because they're just they're very yeah, similar yeah, exactly. holes in the argument. 
and if one of them was the answer, I would think the other one also would be the answer. Mm-hmm. So I think they're both wrong. I think you're absolutely right. D, the consumers tested find the benefits of using fabric softeners worth the expense. And like A. Yeah. The allergies thing, that's, that's not the point if people are allergic to fabric softeners or if people just don't like to use fabric softeners generally. That's not the point. The point is, is FabricSoft the best fabric softener? Mm-hmm. So I think A and D are both mm-hmm. irrelevant because it's like, hey, are fabric softeners, period, a good idea for you? Yeah. Answer E, the consumers tested had the opportunity to evaluate fabric softeners other than fabric soft. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that was the answer after we read the third sentence. Mm-hmm. There are five sentences in this argument. And after I read the third sentence, I knew that that was going to be the answer. Not not trying to brag, just the LSAT's easy. And, you know, if you're doing it right, it should feel easy. Mm-hmm. They, they apparently tested FabricSoft versus no fabric softener. FabricSoft is the best. Well, the question we need to ask is, did, did you uh, test the other fabric softeners? Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I would warn against here is that I agree that this this flaw was very obvious that we're looking at it and we're saying, Hey, this is going to be the answer. And that is going to be the answer 99% of the time. But occasionally you read through all five answers and you don't see that flaw. And it might be because you miss, you didn't actually see the the more obvious flaw or you did see the obvious flaw and they decided not yeah. to give that to you. And you don't want to force the answers into that flaw, right? Like you don't want to force. And so when you do eliminate all five, that's that's a sign that you should probably go back and either verify that you're thinking about the flaw in the right way, look for another flaw, or uh, just reread the answers to make sure that you didn't misread them. But I, I hear a lot of people who are like, well, I got to E, and I didn't find exactly what I was looking for, but that's the one that was left, so I chose it. I'm, I'm just like, well, why are, you, why are you choosing that one over any other answer. If you don't like it, then you should be critical of it just as much as you were, as you were critical of A, B, C, and D. Yeah, you definitely don't want to put a square peg into a round hole. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not like, oh, well, it has this these two words that I liked. No, it's what does the entire answer choice say? And is it the mm-hmm. fully the correct answer? And if not, you need to spend... 10 more seconds maybe 15 more seconds and figure out what you're missing that's the tragic thing i think people make a lot of mistakes when they're trying to rush right they're they're trying to save time Mm -hmm. and i gotta move on to the next one i'm just gonna pick this answer and it's like you know or people say like well i knew it was wrong when i was picking it (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay um stop doing that uh i don't know why you're doing that yeah yeah if if this were like a number 18 or something not that there's a perfect linear uh, increase in difficulty as you get deeper into the section, but we do find numbers 18 and 20 more difficult. On a more difficult flaw question, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, answer E might not have even been there, right? The argument could have two flaws, mm-hmm. and the one glaring flaw, yes, that is one that would be the correct answer if it were listed. Yeah. But if E were not listed here... Mm-hmm. Then I would have to, you know, regroup and go back and and consider 
and and pick the best of yeah. the five answers. Uh, by the way, that wouldn't make any sense on this question because I really think B and C are kind of equally problems with this argument. So I, I don't know how the hell I would pick between B and C. Yeah. I do want to say, though, that occasionally you will get like a difficulty four or five out of five question in the first 10 sometimes. And so if you're looking at these answers and you're saying to yourself, hmm, I'm not so sure about any of them, maybe that is one in which it's sort of the less obvious flaw. So you should always just be very sensitive to how you feel about these answers. I think sometimes people will feel less confident about a section and then they end up doing better. And I think that's because they actually grappled with some of the, you know, they said, wait a sec, I think this answer might not be correct, as opposed to sort of quickly just being like, well, I'm going to pick this and be done. And if there's a, if you don't like an answer, like think about it and deal with that issue, right? Yeah. You'll get people who, I think I was talking about this last time, you'll get people who finish the section early mm-hmm. you know and, and and feel good about it and then it's because they just missed all the questions they didn't they weren't even doing it you know they were they were skimming and they mm-hmm. just weren't even actually really you said grappling i really like that that yeah sometimes the more the more thoughtful you are about it the more introspective you are about it yeah you can feel like you did worse because you you really did the full wrestling match yeah should we do another one I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay. So let's do uh, number nine. Number nine is an argument by a naturalist. The naturalist says, the recent claims that the, that the Tasmanian tiger is not extinct are false. Well, right there, that sounds like the main conclusion. We could be proven wrong, but any thoughts on that? It's like overly, it's sort of overly wordy. The naturalist is saying the Tasmanian tiger is extinct. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, and that's something you should do, right? Like you need to figure that out. Yeah. Like sort of parse that double negative mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and <laughs> figure out exactly what the naturalist is saying. The naturalist here mm-hmm. gives you two bits of information. One, that the Tasmanian tiger is not extinct. Two, according to the naturalist, mm-hmm. the Tasmanian tiger is actually extinct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So I, my, my prediction is that would be the main conclusion. Oh yeah. How do you know that? Uh, because this person is rejecting other people's claims, right? Yeah. Usually if you're telling somebody that they're wrong, you're probably going to have to provide some evidence. So yeah, it's probably the conclusion. Yeah. It would be really hard to use this as evidence for something. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. If not impossible. Okay. So the next sentence, the Tasmanian tiger's natural habitat was taken over by sheep farming decades ago resulting in the animal's systematic elimination from the area. I would already be objecting. Yeah, I'm objecting as well. Okay, they're gone from this area. Does that mean they're extinct, completely gone from the world? That sounds like a part to whole issue. What do you think? Yeah, I would accept it that this habitat has been taken over by sheep farming, and I would accept it that the animal has been systematically eliminated from this area. But... I do not, that does not automatically mean that the Tasmanian tiger is extinct. If, if I recognize that that first sentence is the conclusion of the naturalist's argument, right? I'm going to accept the evidence, but I'm not going to accept the conclusion. Yeah. 
So it's like, I'll grant you that the sheep farming happened and I will grant you that the animal has been systematically eliminated from this area, but that does not mean that it's extinct. Uh, you have not proven that yet. Yeah, I, d- I think that's a really good point. Sometimes I think people hear us saying, hey, be critical, be critical, be critical. And so then we read this second sentence and this premise. And sometimes I'll hear people in class who say, well, hey, how do we know that it was actually eliminated from the area? I mean, maybe sheep farming doesn't necessarily yeah. get rid of this, the, the, uh, the tigers. Yeah. And you're just, it's sort of like, no, 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 just, just accept that. Take that, that negative energy, which is good (laughs) and put it somewhere else. Yeah. It's, you can't punch below the belt, right? So we, we have to accept that there are these rules of engagement to accept our uh, opponent's premises. And then we're going to debate whether those premises actually add up to whatever they're trying to conclude that's where our skepticism comes in. Really the conclusion part is the part we're going to push back on. Yep. The next sentence says, since then, since that time, decades ago, naturalists working in the region have discovered no hard evidence of its survival, such as carcasses or tracks. Uh, Okay. (laughs) And then again, I grant you that these naturalists are working in the region. I grant you that the naturalists have discovered yep. no hard evidence of its survival. There are no carcasses around. There are no tracks around. But the thing still could be alive. It could be alive somewhere else. This is actually, I mean, it almost like proves what we're trying to say. You haven't discovered any hard evidence? Well, what about some evidence? Or like, this is just, this is bad. But anyways... Yeah, you don't have to have evidence. It can still be alive, even if you don't have evidence that it's alive. Last sentence. In spite of alleged sightings of the animal, hmm, counter evidence, the Tasmanian tiger no longer exists, which is what the naturalist was saying at the very beginning, right after admitting some potential damning evidence. Yeah, admits that some folks around say they saw it. Now, that doesn't prove that, of course, it exists because those people could be idiots or seeing something that's not a Tasmanian tiger. But that's a little strange, right, to sort of say that the tiger no longer exists. Such a strong conclusion. Uh, This is bad. Which one of the following is an assumption on which the naturalist argument depends? By the way, um, one thing, this is a necessary assumption question. We know that because it's saying assumption and it says depends and it doesn't have the word if. But if you read this argument, and this would be, it would be hard to not see the problem with this argument, but if you read this argument and you were sympathetic with the naturalist and you thought it was pretty good, and then you read this question stem, which one of the following is an assumption on which the naturalist argument depends, you have to stop yourself right there and say, wait a sec, there is some problem with this argument because it's apparently making an assumption. It's not proving its conclusion entirely on the basis of the evidence it gives us. So I better go back and think about that for a half second. Yeah, I would always be looking for weakeners. There was an argument presented, and so we have to try to think about why there might be problems with the argument. Why does this evidence not necessarily prove the conclusion? And Assumption questions can be harder to predict, right? Because it's not like just Mm -hmm. build a bridge between the evidence and the conclusion. But my Mm -hmm. objection very frequently on a necessary assumption question, if you have a good weakener, the correct answer would be the opposite of that weakener. 
Yes, the person must be thinking the opposite of what you're... Right. Because my weakener is, how do you know... Seems like you have assumed mm-hmm. that it can't live anywhere other than its natural habitat. Yeah, so that's that's one assumption. The other assumption, which you pointed out earlier, is just because you have no evidence for something doesn't mean that it's false. You've assumed that if you have no hard evidence, then it doesn't exist. That it doesn't exist. Or that you would have hard evidence if it did exist. Yep. The third assumption is that these people who have seen the animal are wrong. You have necessarily assumed that the people who allege they saw it did not, in fact, see it. Yep. Because if they did, in fact, see it, then it obviously exists and your argument doesn't make any sense anymore. So I agree completely. Necessary assumption questions are a lot harder to predict than sufficient assumption questions. But I'd also be surprised if the correct answer were not one of, didn't touch on one of the three things we just talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so answer choice A. Does the person have to be assuming this? Does the person who wrote this argument, the naturalist, have to be thinking, A, sheep farming drove the last Tasmanian tigers to starvation by chasing them from their natural habitat? No, they, we, the mechanism by which they died is not relevant. They nope. could have been run over by bulldozers. They could have been you know, eaten by the sheep. It doesn't have to be starvation. Yep. Here's one thing to keep in mind about necessary assumption answer choices. Every single word has to be necessarily true. If, if anything in there doesn't have to be true, then it's no longer the right answer. Well, and in that way, it's very, very similar to a must-be-true question, right? Mm-hmm. Because if it's false, then it will make it so that the naturalist's statements can't be true. Cool. So answer choice B, does it have to be assumed that some scavengers in Tasmania are capable of destroying tiger tiger carcasses without a trace. No, this is the opposite. Yeah, that by itself would weaken the argument. We're looking for something that, if false, would weaken the argument. So B, if true, makes it look like maybe the tigers exist. Yep, and the scavengers are hiding their remains, so we don't know about them. All right, so that's definitely out. C. Does it have to be assumed that every naturalist working in the Tasmanian tiger's natural habitat has systematically looked for evidence of the tiger's survival? No, absolutely not. It doesn't have to be assumed that every single one of them has looked. Uh, Maybe there was one guy who decided not to. That does not matter. That doesn't really change their premises. And even if every one of them did, like I don't see how that's even helpful, but this just doesn't need to be true. And we still have to accept the premise that no hard evidence uh, was discovered. So uh, it just doesn't seem uh, very important. Answer choice D. Does it have to be assumed that the Tasmanian tiger did not move and adapt to a different region in response to the loss of habitat? Uh, (laughs) This is the very first thing we predicted. This seems to be very necessary. And if we negated it, in other words, if we said that this was not true, if the Tasmanian tiger did move and adapt to a different region in response to the loss of habitat, that would be a serious blow to the argument. Thus, it does have to be assumed. The original answer choice has to be assumed because if we get rid of it, we have a serious problem. Yeah, so uh, really quick, just to make sure E is not, that we didn't miss anything, Does it have to be assumed that, quote, those who have reported sightings of the Tasmanian tiger are not experienced naturalists? (laughs) 
No, we have to assume that they weren't um, that they weren't misled, uh, or no, actually, we have to assume that they were misled. Uh, but whether or not they're experienced naturalists is is irrelevant. You could be a, a layperson and still figure this out. So, Deidus, and um, there you go. I wanted to ask you, Ben, um, can you talk just a little bit about your online class and maybe tell people why they should sign up? Sure. So my online class is sort of a, it's it's not a live class. In other words, when you watch it online, you're not actually watching it as it happens. But it's almost live because I record the lessons the night before and then I make them available the next day. And so you can watch the lesson that everyone else just participated in the previous day. And so my online class is constantly changing, and it is the most current class that is happening. And then you will also get access to the uh, videos from previous classes. And so uh, it's kind of a it's a, it's always changing, I guess. It's it's the current class because what happens is I record it. And then make it available the next day. So, yeah, it, wherever you are, uh, you can sign up for it. And if you ever have questions about anything that we go over in class, I'm happy to uh, talk to you over email or you can call me. It doesn't really matter. I'm happy to clarify things. And if you're in the area, you can take advantage of the the live proctored exams or the extra help sessions on Thursday nights. Pricing, um, all the materials included, how's that work? Yeah, so the the price is $9.95, and that includes all the materials. So I will ship those to you, and then you can start working through them as the class progresses. That includes all of the most recent practice tests, as well as uh, not all of the older ones, partly because I think that they're not as relevant, and you don't really have time to do that. But I have cherry-picked the hardest questions from the old test, and I include those as well, so that uh, if you're looking for extra practice in a particular area, you can go back uh, to the older tests and do the hard questions, at least in that area. So, Cool. All right. Thanks yeah. a lot, Ben. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will be back soon. Yeah, thank you.